Hello, everybody. We're back with another episode of Woe is Media after taking a very nice little break from life and things. We are back. We are in full force. We are ready to go. It is spooky season now. Annabelle, what do you have for us today? I got two stories. Um, one is about a failed media startup called Aussie Media. No relation to Ozzy Luss from Survivor, um, but I knew I went Ozzy Osbourne. I'm a terrible. <laughs> oh no, get into that. Ozzy Osbourne has something to do with the story, but um, <gasps> just just a small amount. But we'll we'll get into that later. And then my second story is about a um, an art company where you can invest in lovely works of art and how they kind of go about that. So that sounds maybe like a less mainstream story, but it's pretty cool. And I, I think people should know about it because we don't talk about alternative investments much on the podcast. So that's what I've got today. What about you? So I'm keeping it on the holiday track and I have some news, very, very limited news, but news nonetheless about Netflix's first gay Christmas special coming yes. out this December. <laughs> um, and just like the idea about uh, the commercialism of the LGBT community related to Christmas, Mm -hmm. Um, just stuff like that. And I also, I came up with this very last minute, but I wanted to do like a little mini series for the month of October about true crimes relating to Hollywood. Yes. I have a little story for you today. I I tried to find one that wasn't like gruesome and bloody. Um, There is a death involved, so trigger warning on that. But it's more about like why we think the person is no longer with us. Mm-hmm. So, okay, conspiracy. Nice. It's a conspiracy. I like it. All right, I guess I will get us started today. So my first episode, or excuse me, my first story is called "Woe Is Aussie Media," which I know Ooh. I keep recycling this title, and maybe that's lame of me, but. I don't know. It, it seemed appropriate because Aussie Media certainly has a lot of woes. So have you heard of Aussie Media, first of all? I no, I hadn't either. Um, but they there's on here. So hmm. we'll get into it. So Startup Aussie Media is, according to their website, a global and forward looking media and entertainment company, which like that doesn't really mean anything like that's That's a very broad statement. And media can obviously apply to a lot of things. But the CEO and founder, his name is Carlos Watson. Um, And basically what Ozzy does is they produce like news TV shows, podcasts, and daily newsletters. And if you go on their website, they like have everything published. So their TV show, it's not really like something you would find on cable. It's kind of like an internet, like a web show, I guess is probably a better way to put it um, than a TV show. But that's kind of what they do they just basically are producing content for kind of more of the modern generation and how they consume things. So they're not sending out like black and white periodicals, you know, they they're with the times a little bit more, but they're going down. Um, the company shut its doors a couple of weeks ago and they did this because there were a lot of scandals and bad mistakes going on. So we will talk about what those were some pretty juicy stuff here but if you're familiar with axios media or vox media it's supposed to be kind of similar to that um there's a lot of like mini media companies that are kind of circulating because obviously it's really hard to compete with facebook and google for their ad revenue um but this is sort of just a little slice of the internet that's trying to get a piece of of the pie for ad revenue um so a lot of similar companies out there in Aussie, if, you've, if you're familiar with Axios or Vox, this is probably the best comparison to it. Um, so the scandal, or the big one, I should say, there's a couple here, but the scandal, so the chief operating officer and co-founder, whose name is Samir Rao, he was on a call with potential investors. So because this company is a startup, they're trying to get investments, you know, so they have the money to keep building and growing and do, you know, what they want to do, but they obviously don't generate any sort of profit yet because they're a startup. So they're trying to get money from outside investors to get what they need to keep going. Mm -hmm. So they were talking to Goldman Sachs and Goldman Sachs, obviously like is one of the major players on wall street. And they were interested in Aussie media's video department videos, obviously like a very lucrative part of the internet because you it's digital ads where there's 
not just audio, but obviously video too. So it's where you can make a lot of money if you're kind of invested in media companies. So Ozzy Media was speaking with them, trying to raise $40 million. And Samir Rao was on the phone with Goldman Sachs. And Ozzy Media was like, okay, we're going to have this call with Goldman and we're going to really talk about our relationship with YouTube. Like that's kind of where they publish their news TV shows. Um, so Samir, he has scheduled this meeting with Goldman Sachs to talk about relationship with YouTube. And like, this is how valuable that relationship is. And this is what we're doing. And this is why you should give us $40 million so we can, you know, keep growing. The meeting comes around. It's supposed to be a Zoom call, which includes video. Samir claims tech issues. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, my video is not working. Can we just switch to a conference call? Which, like, I'm sure some people who have been working remotely have claimed that before at work just because, like, they either don't look how they want to look. They're doing something else in the background. Like, they just, whatever it is, they don't want to be seen by their, by their coworkers or who they're having the call with fairly understandable honestly but they're like um okay well this is weird so we'll we'll switch to a conference call that's fine it's not obviously your fault if you have tech issues and this all happened in february of this year by the way so they switched to the conference call and rao samir rao he used the call to pretend to be a youtube executive touting out ozzy's success on youtube so because it wasn't on video he could both simultaneously be himself and the YouTube executive. So he was basically catfishing them on this call. Oh, okay. I got confused for a second. Yeah, no, that's, it is a little confusing, but he was pretending to be this YouTube executive and it's a lot easier to pretend to be someone else when there's no video, which, you know, makes a lot of sense, but yeah, he was essentially just catfishing them. Um, And YouTube found out that this man was, impersonating one of their executives and they basically investigated it and a report came out in the New York Times last week about this and investors obviously were panicking they're like hmm okay well this isn't good this is very illegitimate business practices if you're trying to pretend to be executives of other companies if you're trying to catfish Goldman Sachs like that's not gonna be a good look Mm -hmm. like that's just not something you should do it's unethical and very stupid, honestly. Somebody's going to find out. The New York Times published all of this. So investors started panicking. They wanted out of their money. They basically were like, nope, I, I don't want to be a part of this company anymore. Um, advertisers I'm who, out. yeah, I'm out. Bye. Um, advertisers who kind of were putting their ads on Aussie's content, they pulled out, they froze their payments. They were like, nope, this is, this is going to crash. So that was kind of the beginning of the end for Aussie media. So some other scandals include, and here's where we get an Aussie Osborne. Oh. Um, so they allegedly were, they, first of all, before we get an Aussie, they were inflating viewer metrics. So they were claiming that, Oh, like 5 million people watch this when maybe it was like 1 million. I don't have the exact numbers. I couldn't find those anywhere, but yeah, basically they were padding. Oh, that their sounds numbers. like a YouTuber. <laughs> Yeah, padding their stats, so to speak, to kind of make it seem like they were reaching a bigger audience than they actually were, which to my knowledge, nobody I know is familiar with this company. So I can't imagine the views were that great unless it's just they have more of a niche market with people that we're not familiar with. But anyway, so there was also a lawsuit from Ozzy Osbourne (laughs) and he was basically suing uh Aussie media because they had an annual Aussie fest which is like their annual concert kind of media event where they try and you know get a lot of viewers and get a lot of ad revenue and Ozzy Osbourne was not okay with it so they sued him (laughs) and yeah so that was obviously bad you don't want Ozzy Osbourne and Sharon Osbourne mad at you so like wait sorry Ozzy Osbourne doesn't own the the rights to the name Ozzy though no but I, I couldn't find too much about this but I'm guessing like Ozzy Fest was something either Ozzy Osbourne had previously used oh, okay 
or something like that. Like Ozzy spells his name O-Z-Z-Y and Ozzy Media spells theirs O-Z-Y, but it's like very similar. Oh. And I guess Ozzy Osbourne was concerned that this media company was trying to like make people think that it had some sort of association with him when it, okay. when they don't. So it was a trademark lawsuit, um, which Ozzy Osbourne won, by the way. But um, I mean, he's got money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, you don't want Ozzy Osbourne mad at you either, or Goldman Sachs, or YouTube. No. So none of them. They've, they've offended some pretty big people here. So all this stuff came out in the New York Times report and Aussie Media, the board of it basically decided, okay, we need to shut down the company. So they closed its doors. So they are no more. Um, They had some major investors such as billionaire Mark Lassery. He kind of resigned as the chair um, and former BBC anchor Caddy Kay. She, who also worked at Aussie Media, she resigned. So there were a bunch of big figures who were involved with the company that thought it was going to be kind of the next big media company. Once this trouble started, they decided not to weather the storm. They just kind of decided to pull out. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've closed their doors and there were 75 full-time employees that, you know, unfortunately lost their jobs and got laid off. So it wasn't a huge company in terms of staff, which is obviously for the best since it closed um but 75 people is still 75 people who are now out of work so hopefully they're able to you know find their way and get jobs at better companies but in addition to like all of the scandal that was going on and you could probably guess what's coming here it was a very toxic work environment oh which, really yeah i mean if you have to lie to make things work for you and to get investors on board yeah maybe 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 it's a toxic work environment but both uh, Carlos Watson, who's the CEO, and Samir Rao, who's the COO, they were both apparently like very hot-headed people, and they were always screaming at people in the office, just kind of a very hostile environment. So that was bad. So hopefully those 75 people have moved on to a better place where they're not getting screamed at on the regular. They like so. they died. What'd you say? You make it sound like they died. They moved on to a better place. Yeah, uh, that was poorly said. I'm sorry. No, they. I'm hope. I'm hopeful that they're all very much alive. Yes. And they just moved on to better professional environments. Correct. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of drama going on there. Additional lies that Aussie media told. Carlos Watson. He is the CEO, as I said, but they all. He also had his own like talk show on the platform, which I don't know, like if you're running a company but you're also going to be like the face of the company and produce some of the major content that your company puts out I don't know this just screams like megalomaniac to me mm-hmm. like this this man probably has a very big ego if you just want his face out everywhere on the internet and on the masthead as the CEO but he had you know one of the primary shows that the company produced and he claimed that it was the first ever talk show on Amazon Prime which is not true. Like Amazon Prime really has nothing to do with the show. Like pretty much anybody can upload their video content to Prime using this third-party service. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Prime will review it and make sure it's in conjunction with their standards and then they'll put it on the platform. So yes, it's a talk show on Amazon Prime, but it's not the first ever. It's not the first ever and it really has nothing to, it's not like Amazon Prime video produced it. Mm-hmm you know, Aussie media produced it and just uploaded it basically. So yeah, that was obviously an issue. So yeah, Aussie media down bad. All the investors pulled out. Carlos Watson is claiming they will rise again. I don't know. They've lost all credibility, but what's really important here and kind of the major takeaway is how the New York times is basically who brought this company down And we don't really talk about journalists in the form of like regulation, but they kind of are a form of regulators because they, they are the ones who can get companies who are doing shady activity busted. Like the wall street journal, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, when we covered the Theranos story, the wall street journal took down Theranos with a big bombshell article. Yeah. And there have been countless other examples of major newspapers publishing these bombshell stories and taking down people and companies who are just doing legal or unethical activity. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I feel like the New York Times op-ed on, or not op-ed, but like thing on Facebook could also kind of tie to that. Yeah, the Wall Street Journals. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I thought it was the New York Times. I apologize. No, 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 all good. Um, Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was all published. It was all leaked to the Wall Street Journal from the whistleblower who actually testified in Congress this week. I don't know if you saw that, but the whistleblower revealed herself. Her name is Frances Haugen. Frances Haugen. Thank you. I couldn't remember her last name. Um, But yeah, so she came forward. So we have a face to the name now. I wasn't going to do a full story on that this week because it's more of the same thing that she talked about with Congress, which we kind of covered last week. But yeah, so journalism is important. These people really regulate and kind of keep in check some of the sketchy behavior that goes on. And I think a lot of companies and entrepreneurs, they think that, oh, they'll like fudge things a little bit in the beginning just to kind of get their footing. But sometimes it can really spin out of control. So honest business practices, people, that's, that's the only way you can get, well, that's the only sustainable way, I should say. You can get away with lies, but, Correct. you know, it's the truth is going to come out eventually because there's a lot of very smart, talented people in the journalism sector who will figure it out. Life finds a way. Figure it out. Figure it out. All right, that's Aussie Media and their downfall. All right, so my first story is much shorter than I would like it to be because I thought there was going to be more information when I started writing it. And when I was done, I was like, oh, this isn't that much. But like I said, we could have a candid conversation. Netflix is releasing its first Christmas movie with two gay leads this year. Uh, Mm -hmm. The movie is going to be titled Single All the Way. Uh Aha. Aha. That's kind of lame, but I guess it's... it's Absolutely is. Yes. And in my opinion, it's most likely just a move to one-up Hulu from last year's release of Happiest Season, Mm -hmm. which featured a lesbian romance and at center. And last year, Hallmark also released their film, The Christmas House, featuring a gay relationship. So, you know, I'm not at Netflix. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I can most definitely assume that this move was just to compete with others. I don't feel that, you know, Netflix is out here like for the gays, Mm -hmm. like make money. Yeah. So the plot for single all the way is as follows. Desperate to avoid his family's judgment about his perpetual single status, same. Peter convinces his best friend, Nick, to join him for the holidays and pretend that they are now in a relationship. Okay. Sounds like every fan fiction I've ever read in my life yeah really (laughs) so the cast is pretty much one of all-star status in my opinion in the two main lead roles you have Michael Yuri, who many people may not know but I'm familiar with he played Vanessa Williams's character's assistant on Ugly Betty mm-hmm. I, right now I'm blanking but Ugly Betty is one of my favorite shows of all time and Mark Mark his name was Mark I wanted to call him Jonathan but I was like no it's Mark um he was just a fun light edge because like Wilhelmina Slater Vanessa Williams's character is like the villain basically of Ugly Betty and Mark is just kind of like the sassy sidekick in the corner mm-hmm. just like you know sometimes being good but sometimes making bad decisions too and I always enjoyed him in the other lead role, we have Philemon Chambers, which I haven't been able to find many uh, credits attached to his IMDb or Wikipedia pages, but he's very attractive and I'm excited for him. And I hope that this movie is a jumping off point for his career. I hope that he gets many more calls after this because yeah, I hope so also, too. he's also a man of color. So we yes. have an interracial gay relationship. Love it. So I love that for him. At playing Michael Yuri's character's mom, we have Kathy Najimy. You know okay. Who, do you know who she is? I The name sounds familiar. I'm having trouble picturing her face, though. I'll give you a hint. She's a Halloween icon. Oh, is she in um, Hocus Pocus? She is. She plays Mary, the one with the crooked lip. Yes. Fun hair. Mm-hmm. Kathy Najimy is a gay icon. They did a really good job of picking gay icons for this film. 
I love Kathy Najimy. I find her hysterical. I think she's so funny. I'm really excited to see her play a sweet mother in a Christmas film. Mm-hmm. Playing the father, we have Barry Bostwick, who may many may not know by name, but if I said Brad, does that give you any inclination? Brad? Brad? Janet? Dr. Scott? Is it Rocky Horror? It is. He plays okay. Brad Majors from Rocky Horror. Okay. I've never seen that. I just know some of the references. Oh, anyways. <laughs> I know. Paint the big red V on my forehead. It's okay. Okay. Well, I've never actually been to a performance of Rocky Horror, so technically I would have to have the V on my forehead too, but I've watched the movie a ton of times by myself, mm-hmm. and I know the cues, like, because I looked him up because I'm crazy, <laughs> um, but yes, he's playing the dad, and to wrap out this wonderful cast, we have another gay icon, best known, in my opinion, for her role in A Cinderella Story, Jennifer Coolidge. Yes! I love Jennifer Coolidge. I'm a very appealing person. Person. Oh, and from Legally Blonde. Oh my God. Oh yes. I'm taking the dog, dumbass. Must have cost a fortune to fly that fish in from Norwegian. Norwegian. <laughs> in your head. Now I'm just thinking of. I'm a very appealing, appealing person. person. In your head. Oh, God. Yeah, in your head. Oh, God, real bad. <laughs> Those are like two of the best chick flicks oh, of, of all time, in my opinion. Partly due to Jennifer Coolidge. Yes, she's so fabulous. I love her so much. Is she as pretty as you? She could use some mascara and some serious highlights, but she's not completely unfortunate looking. <laughs> well, if a girl like you can't hold on to a man, there sure as hell isn't any hope for the rest of us. I'm done. Sorry. Those are both two of my favorite movies. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other quotes from the Cinderella story and I'm blanking. Norwegia really always gets me. <laughs> I have never seen my husband's hidden will before. Will before. <laughs> no, honey, leave those on. The lawn's looking a little brown. He you don't know. We're supposed to be conserving water. We're in the middle of a drought. Droughts are for, for poor, poor people. people. You think J-Lo has a brown lawn? People who use extra water have extra class. As she drops the Norwegian salmon. On her tits. <laughs> Sorry. She's so iconic. No, she is, though. Honestly, you could just fill this whole situation with just Jennifer Polish quotes. Um, she was also in Two Broke Girls, which my family watched um, when I was in middle and high school and she was always to me the funniest part of that show like, oh no doubt no offense to like Kat Dennings and Beth Bear but Jennifer Coolidge was the, the literally she got like the you know how like when certain people come on screen um you get like a round of applause every time her character entered there was like Woo! it's like well no, deserved well deserved she's playing like the um the fun aunt I I believe so that's pretty much all the information I have on single all the way so far. They have like the first look photos, like maybe three or so on entertainment weekly right now. I'm sure you can find them somewhere else, but I wanted to ask Annabelle, did you watch happiest season last year? No, I did not. Okay. Did you hear about it? <laughs> not really a lot. I mean, I have like a, a standard rotation of holiday movies. I tend to watch with my family. There's not a lot of openings for, for new entries um so I can't say I was like looking for something like that and I I I don't really use Hulu a whole lot honestly so that's probably why I missed it but did you see it how was it I watched it because you know I love I love the gays and the movie was directed by Clea Duvall who I adore and she, Mm -hmm. she is a lesbian for those who may not know she's a lesbian actress she's been in a lot of like wonderful films and she said that this movie was like partly based on her life so I was like oh wow like I want to go watch this I was I was thoroughly disappointed with it really Um, cast was fantastic like you got Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis playing the two main roles obviously most people know who Kristen Stewart is but many may not know who Mackenzie Davis is she's Yorkie from San Junipero (gasps) 
Really? Okay, that's cool. San Junipero is an episode of the anthology series on Netflix, Black Mirror, by the way. Which honestly needs to come back. I don't know why it hasn't had new episodes, like, or why. Because the world is too dark of a place. And I mean, don't that's want to fair, but I, I want more Black Mirror. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't here for the last season, honestly. Oh, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, they need to, re- they need to redeem themselves before they, like, officially call it off. Because yeah, I, I agree. I was also upset. Um, but you got Kristen Stewart, Mackenzie Davis, Allison Brie. Yes. Of, of Community and Glow are the two mm-hmm. main things I feel like people would know her from. Aubrey Plaza. Yes. Dan Levy. Nice. Um, let's see. Mary Steenburgen. Steenburgen. I can never pronounce her name right. Um, she, she, if you see her, you know her. She's like the mom character and like everything mm-hmm. she was in she was in philadelphia what's eating gilbert great she was she was the mom and elf the oh okay yeah i always like yeah. i know there's like movies that people would know her from she's married to ted danson in real life fun fact she was also in book club a few years ago which normally i see movies like book club and i'm like that's not gonna be fun like that's gonna it's gonna be terrible but it was a good movie all right but going into what I didn't like about the film the whole point is Mackenzie Davis's character comes from like a really like well-off family and her dad's running for I believe mayor of the town or some yeah campaign for mayor and she brings Kristen Stewart home and they've been together for about a year Mm -hmm. and she's like you can come home with me but we can't talk about our relationship and Kristen Stewart's like oh okay and that already set me off because these are grown women like it's not like teenagers or college students like these are two grown women and you're bringing her home you've been dating for nearly a year you've never mentioned her to your family and it the the family dynamics in the movie are just really uncomfortable and it's it's meant to be that way because you know all these like families like to pretend that they're happy during Christmas, but in, in reality, no one's really happy. Mm-hmm. And it just, I'm not going to spoil it, but like, in my opinion, things should have ended differently. <laughs> okay. Noted. Cause they do like a flash forward, like by one year at the end of the film. And I wasn't pleased with the results. I'm just going to say that. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to spoil things. So mm-hmm. yeah I mean yeah that's sad they like didn't feel like they could talk about their relationship even though they're like out of the house and have you know their own lives without you know probably financial support or anything from their parents like why couldn't they talk about it dad's running for a mayoral campaign and you're scared what that's going to do to him like that that's me I just I didn't like that yeah I don't blame you so and I'm sure like it's been almost a year since I watched it I'm sure if I watched it again I could give you a very detailed list of what all I didn't like about it but yeah just just those things I wasn't a fan of but I'm really I'm interested to see how this Netflix movie goes because I hope that it defies logic and I hope that you know because there's there's the trope with gay and LGBTQ films where someone ends up dying someone ends up severely mentally damaged by the events of the film so I'm hoping that it's just a nice happy rom-com set during Christmas for the holidays yeah yes so that's all I have for the first story I think like if I'm opining on like commercializing the LGBTQ community it's tough because like yes they're commercializing it but it's also important to have representation Uh and I think I've said it before on this podcast and I've done a lot in my everyday life and I'm a broken record and sorry but it's still relevant the most valuable real estate in the world is the top of the Netflix homepage so if this movie is on the top of the Netflix homepage when it comes out it will get a ton of views I mean if you put a movie there it will get watched so I think it's a good thing because it will hopefully, I don't want to say normalize, but like put out some palatable content that a lot of people who even are not considered part of the LGBTQ community will hopefully enjoy and the, and it'll not make anybody uncomfortable, hopefully, because it shouldn't. And 
I think that could potentially be a good thing just to give the community more exposure and more put it in kind of a mainstream eye, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. But, and this is a star-studded cast, so this will obviously, you know, help people come watch it, you know, if those are actors that they're familiar with and that they enjoy. But I do think probably at the end of the day, like you said, before you started talking about everybody in the movie, this is not necessarily Netflix being an ally. This is Netflix capitalizing. And to your point too, that's why I hope this is like a good, healthy representation of the LGBTQ community, because if it is placed at the top of the Netflix, you know, order screen, whatever you call it, a lot of people are going to see it. And if it's Mm -hmm. not great in representing the community, then these narrow-minded individuals are going to be like, well, all the gays are like that. And it's like, no, that's not. Yeah. It's kind of high stakes, so to speak. Yes, correct. So hoping for the best. When does it drop? Do you know? December 2nd. Okay. So right at the beginning of the Christmas season. Mark your calendars. All right. Shall I get into my second story? Yes. Okay. So my second story is called Masterworks's Moneymaker. So Masterworks is a company that has basically made it possible to buy fractional shares of art. Yeah, it's interesting because normally if you go to like an auction or something like that and you want to purchase art, you buy the whole thing and you take it home with you and you put it on display and art, a lot of people don't think of it this way. In addition to it being something you can aesthetically enjoy, art, generally speaking, appreciates over time. So it gains in value. A lot of that has to do with, you know, if the artist gains notoriety and, you know, eventually, and this is kind of a sad fact of investing in art, but if the artist eventually passes away, then the art does tend to become more valuable because obviously the artist can't produce anything else. So it's, it becomes, it's a scarcity thing at that point. That's why it becomes more valuable. So, but that's kind of the old way of investing in art and Masterworks is a company that has made it possible to invest in art in a different way. Mm -hmm. So you can purchase fractional shares of art. Now, what this means is you're not going to get the physical artwork itself, but you have claim to a certain percentage of art. And when it appreciates in value, you're gaining that money as well. Does that make sense? So it becomes kind of a security, like a stock, as opposed to like the actual painting. Yes. So, but this is like a pretty cool idea and nothing that we've seen before. And Wall Street agrees because Masterworks has reached unicorn status, which Alyssa, do you remember what it means to be a unicorn? It's very important. Yes, it's very important for startups, but a unicorn means that they have reached a valuation of $1 billion. I didn't, I I couldn't remember the exact number, but I was like, it's something that like most people cannot do. Yes, right. 1 billion. So this company was founded in 2017 in Tribeca, New York, which is a very poppin' area for people in the art community. A lot of artists going on there. Um, So it's very appropriate that this was founded in Tribeca. Um, as we said, art is like kind of an alternative investment. So alternative investments would be things like besides, you know, stocks and bonds, it's things like commodities, it's things like real estate, it's things that most of us probably are not investing in either because it requires some area of expertise or just kind of access to different companies or assets that most people just aren't really able to access and art. Like, do you have any priceless works of art in your apartment, Alyssa? I certainly don't. Not priceless, but I have some original works by like local artists. Uh, from, okay, well, that's cool. Uh, but no, nothing like I, ha- I hate to like undermine their work because I love everything. Obviously, I bought it, but like nothing from a notable artist. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, and that's okay. But this is pretty cool because it allows art to be a little bit more accessible because generally when you think about people who purchase like major works of art, they're like incredibly wealthy. Correct. But this is kind of democratizing it a little bit more. Um, And I actually, what's interesting, and I didn't know this, modern art 
supposedly this is what masterwork says so kind of take it with a grain of salt because it obviously behooves them to say this but they're claiming that modern art actually appreciates in value more than stocks does which i can sort of see because stocks are obviously subject to market volatility and there's probably a lot less volatility in the art market because while art is one of those things that people are not going to purchase unless they have the money for it generally when things happen to the whole economy not always, but generally speaking, the rich do okay. Like they're they're gonna be fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they're probably still gonna be buying art even when the rest of us are in a recession, right? Mm-hmm. Which is an unfortunate reality of the American economy, but mm-hmm. discussions for another day. So as I said, it's fractionalizing the shares of the art. So it's basically dividing the pie up into very, very small pieces. Um, and like I said, you're not getting the actual physical piece of art sometimes you never see it sometimes you don't even know who the artist is but this is what you're purchasing um and masterworks says that they are democratizing art collecting now democratizing is kind of like a very big buzzword in finance lately that i've noticed like robin hood says the same thing they're like oh we're democratizing trading like we're making it easier because there's no commission or anything like that you don't have to be a wall street stockbroker to trade anymore Now you don't have to be a super rich, wealthy person to buy art is basically what Masterworks is. Uh, And how this works is when Masterworks sells the art way down the line after it has appreciated it a lot. And obviously they're getting like appraisals and stuff on it to see that it's gonna, you know, go up in value. They're not gonna sell it if it only appreciates a little bit in value. Then the people who have bought the fractional shares are gonna get a return on their investment. Um, Masterworks, this is, this kind of goes into their valuation a little bit. They have 200,000 users on the website. Now this is just people who are like looking, shopping and have registered an account, but they're maybe not necessarily buying anything. They currently have 15,000 active buyers. So that's not huge, but given the limited amount of like priceless, modern, fine art, that's a pretty standard, large amount of people who are getting into it here. And they're kind of applying finance to fine art. So their business model, it sort of works a lot like a hedge fund, which I know a lot of people are not really familiar with how hedge funds work. That's just kind of another buzzword in finance. People are like, yeah, hedge funds. I don't know what those do. And it's okay. A lot of people don't. But because hedge funds are not something most people have access to either. Again, this is like something for the ultra wealthy. Um, But how Masterworks' business model works is they have a portfolio of art that they've purchased they've gone to the dealers they've gone to the auctions and they have physically purchased all of this art and then they are securitizing it and you know putting those shares up on their site and you can purchase them there so that is kind of like their initial public offering they're putting their shares up and you can purchase them from there and they are kind of managing the art and managing the investors So they are keeping 1.5% of the value of the art as a management fee because they're managing all of this art that they have under their umbrella. And they are also taking a 20% cut on whatever gains that they make when they sell the art. So whatever the 80% after the art sells, that gets divvied up among the other owners who have bought the fractional shares. Mm -hmm. And that's how hedge funds work. They, you know, are buying and short selling a bunch of stocks or bonds or whatever. It's mostly stocks. And then they have like a a 1.5 or 2% management fee because they're actively trading all the time. So they have to be on top of it. And then whatever gains they make, they keep 20% of it. So hedge funds are like a very costly way to invest because you're giving up a lot of money. Whereas, you know, if you're just investing in an index fund or something like that, you're not paying management fees because it's passive investing. So also hedge funds, by the way, they have been outperformed by the market on the whole recently they're not generally worth the money at least right now um but anyway that's kind of how masterworks business model works this year alone they have bought over 400 million dollars worth in art and next year they are planning to buy one billion dollars in art yeah so that's a lot of art um and they're currently already profitable which is huge for a startup and for a unicorn we know it takes years and years to reach profitability for a lot of unicorns. But Masterworks is already there, which is pretty cool. And it's generally when you think about people who are buying art, it's either individual buyers or it's like the people of the individual buyers who get sent 
you know, they're decorators or they're, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not part of this world. So it's kind of hard to like conceptualize it, but like, it's not companies generally speaking who are buying art. It's, you know, trusts or individual people, but masterworks kind of serves as like this big whale in the, in the industry who is basically buying up a lot of art. So artists and the auctions who are selling all this art, they want to work with masterworks. Masterworks has a lot of power because they buy so much art and they have all this volume that they're trying to fill. So people are going to go to Masterworks first because they know for a fact that they will probably get their art sold. And Masterworks, because it's so big and it has all this power, it can really set the prices and things like that. And that also kind of is the reason for its billion dollar valuation because it has a lot of power in the marketplace. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So the CEO of of Masterworks, his name is Scott Lynn. And this is arguably like the most lucrative art dealing business model ever. So pretty cool. This is a very big accomplishment. Um, Another thing to note about Masterworks though, is that the secondary market. So when Masterworks purchases the art and it securitizes it and it puts, you know, the shares online for you to purchase, the secondary market is if you're trading the shares of the ownership, like among other people who didn't initially buy in, the secondary market is only available to people who are already owners. Mm-hmm. So maybe you're, you own one piece from Masterworks, but you missed out on this other artist, but you want to get in on it. You can trade with other current owners, if that makes sense. So the secondary market is also pretty closed off. It's not like as available. So if you are interested in investing in art, you have to get in pretty early on Masterworks. It's something to kind of watch the website for and act on it as soon as you can. So yeah, um, that's pretty much all I have on that. It's kind of a niche investment story, but I thought it was pretty cool. And Alyssa, I know, is pretty interested in art. She goes to museums a lot in Houston. And I thought this might be something that was fun to talk about because we don't talk about this kind of investing very much on the podcast. So, But the good news is if you're interested, it is something you can get involved in. You don't have to be super rich anymore to buy art because now you can buy little shares of it but you do not get to enjoy the physical artwork i love art yes she does i'm looking at her wall which has a lot of lovely prints. <laughs> yeah there's literally so much thing so many things behind me so give it the way let's get into true crime all right so i have entitled this case in bad hands Ooh. The story of Gary DeVore. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. That's how we're pronouncing it. I apologize if it's not correct. So let me tell you about Gary. Gary Martin DeVore was born on September 17th, 1941. We have a Virgo amongst us and began his writing career in the late 60s on shows such as The Newlywed Game with Chuck Mm -hmm. Barris, The Steve Allen Show, and Tempo. Very nice. I'm not familiar with any of these shows except the newlywed game. Me too. <laughs> so I should have, I should have looked them up, but they, they sound the way that it was written. Oh, also before I really get into the miss of it, um, I got the majority of my information from a vice article entitled the mystery of the dead Hollywood screenwriter whose hands were never found. Oh gosh. Okay. Hence the title of my segment. Um, but I wanted to give credit to them and I got a little bit of information from Gary's Wikipedia page. So going on, he soon became a successful Hollywood screenwriter, script doctor, and producer known for films such as Raw Deal starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Dogs of War, which I believe starred Christopher Walken. So some big names attached to his projects. Mm -hmm. He was married to singer Maria Cole who was famously also married to Nat King Cole prior from 1969 to 1978. He then married actress Sandy Newton from 1981 to 1985. And then he was married to Wendy DeVore from 1996 and 1997. Gary was driving home through the Mojave Desert in late June of 1997 after just finishing his latest film script, 
sadly, Gary never made it home. He just mm -mm. he disappeared into the desert in the dead of night with no trace. No, nothing was ever found until one year later, his car was discovered submerged below a bridge over a Palmdale, California aqueduct. He was found inside. Oh, gosh. It took him a year to be found? Mm -hmm. Wow. And I'll, I'll get into it more because, like, many people were like, well, why didn't you check this area, like, after he disappeared? We'll get into it. His hands, gun, and laptop containing the film script that he had just finished were all missing. And the aqueduct was actually searched when his disappearance was first reported, and there were no signs of impact. So police concluded that for DeVore to crash his vehicle in this location meant that he would have had to have driven three miles against traffic without being seen. And this would have been very difficult because the vehicle's lights were switched. We're not switched on. Sorry, I'm not making any sense. So he would have been hit. Yeah. Driving against traffic. Yeah. And like, there was also a quote from someone that works in the police force and they were like, evil Knievel on his best day could not do this. Okay. So it was pretty much impossible. Yes. And a lot of people are probably wondering like, why, why a screenwriter? Why this weird incident of this man disappearing for a year only to be found submerged in an aqueduct? So basically- the Big Steel, which was the script that DeVore had just finished before mm -hmm. his appearance, was said to have contained allegations against the U.S. government involving drugs, bank robbery, and all of this was set against the controversial invasion of Panama. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's some political things at stake here. Correct. Many have speculated that DeVore could have been murdered by anyone from Russian drug gangs to even the American CIA. Ooh. And this is all speculation that I'm getting into. I'm not trying to get us sued. This is pure speculation and conspiracy. So Dr. Matthew Alford has researched this case thoroughly and has even written a book and released a film about Gary DeVore's case entitled The Writer With No Hands. Mm -hmm. And to even go deeper into the conspiracy, the documentary was initially posted on a website of Alford's and it was immediately taken down and any trace of the attack that took it down was removed from the website's code. That's sketchy. Correct. Yeah. So the writer with no hands revealed many previously unknown facts about Gary DeVore, as well as his disappearance and dis discovery. The hand bones that were recovered from the river were incomplete. It was initially reported that 23 bones were found at the scene of the crime. Annabelle, would you like to take a guess as to how many were actually found? Two. Three. Yes. Okay. I was Very close. close. Yes. So Alford suggests that men claiming to be government agents entered divorce house and removed more information about the script following his disappearance. So like after he disappeared and everybody was wondering like, where'd he go? Apparently these men came up to his widow's house and were like, we need to get this information. And she was like, wait, what are you taking? Um, there is no record of the final phone call that Gary made to his wife anywhere. Like no one can find it, mm -hmm. which is sketchy. Multiple sources also report an unmarked black helicopter taking pictures of the vehicle when it was retrieved in 1998. They ran background checks and they couldn't find it linked to any police department in the area or any military base in the area. So no one knows who this black helicopter belonged to. Um, Alfred initially presented his findings to the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department to request divorce file because he was like, I have all this information. It would be a great help if you could possibly lend me his file so I can do even more information and possibly help right. you out in the process. However, the department said that they may need to reopen the criminal investigation and therefore could not release the file and it was never 
it was never given to Alfred. So Alfred did all this information without even having the like actual police file. Hmm. So, okay. And he goes into more detail about like his, the animosity between him and the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department because it's like they don't they don't get along. Alfred also discovered that Devore did in fact have a working relationship with the CIA. So his ex- really yeah yeah that's so, weird. It, it'll make more sense in a second, I promise. Because I thought the same thing. I was like, what, why would a screenwriter have a working relationship with the CIA? That doesn't make sense. So according to his ex-wife and his widow, they both recalled him having phone conversations with quote-unquote government services and recalled Gary working on documents with Cyrillic writing that he could not explain. Like he could not say like what was going on or what from what I could understand from my limited, limited research, Cyrillic writing is something that um, is used by like government agencies. And it's like a writing system that's used by like various languages in like Europe and Asia. And it's like, it's kind of like code basically. Okay. Yeah. It's encrypted. Yeah, basically. Um, so Wendy, his widow, recalled to CNN, quote, he had been very disturbed over some of the things that he had been finding in his research. He was researching in the United States, the invasion of Panama, because he was setting the actual story that he was writing against it and the overthrow of the man in charge and the enormous amounts of money laundering in the Panamanian banks, also our own government's money laundering. So it's like, he's getting deep. He is getting deep. He's in the weeds here. Yes. Um, DeVore even worked at the Tonopah Air Force Base, also known as Area 52. Hmm. Close but no cigar. Right. And evidence of his travels to South America with the military were also discovered by Alfred at this time. So he knew Chase Brandon, who was the head of the CIA's Hollywood office in the 1980s. And Chase Brandon was actually Tommy Lee Jones's cousin. Okay. So it all connects back to Hollywood. Right. In 1975, it was revealed that the CIA had infiltrated almost all aspects of the news and entertainment media as part of Operation Mockingbird. And it had been assumed that since then, um, their involvement in Hollywood had all but been curtailed. But things have been discovered by you know conspiracy theorists as well as investigators that that may not be the case you know the 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 military and the government may still have some influence on hollywood you know maybe 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 maybe. (laughs) so numerous friends actually recount devore becoming more skeptical of u.s power later in his life like after he served his time in the military and the more he's discovering things the less he's like, oh, but this is what they actually meant. He's like, no, this is, this may be a little sketchy. Uh, Dr. Alfred suggests that Devore's film, The Big Steel, may have presented the invasion of Panama as nothing more than a diversion that would allow the U.S. into the country to steal back incriminated photos of senior U.S. officials that could have been used as blackmail. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, Obviously, there's all this information still out there. You know, you've got Michael Alford's book. You've got the movie that I tried to find. It's not available for streaming anywhere. But, you know, if you're if you're really into it, I'm sure you could buy it somewhere. Probably on but, the dark web. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> but it is safe to say that Gary DeVore's death has never been solved. The official date of his death is listed as June 28, 1997. And he was 55 years old at the time of his death. So. Wow. Very, very shallow dive that I did because I did this last minute, but I was like, this is fascinating. No, I like it. I, that's really fun. I, why would they remove his hands? Whoever did it. That seems very specific. That's gotta be a metaphor for something, right? He couldn't write anymore. Plus the majority of like the, the the dna that you get from fingerprints is like you know i'm not gonna sit here and be like dna is foolproof because a lot of people think that way and dna is not foolproof because you can actually mess up sometimes but like fingerprints are really hard to mess up Mm -hmm. 
So I'm thinking it had to do with the fingerprints in the body being identified correctly, as well as just the pettiness of him being a writer and not being able to write or type anymore. Gotcha. Okay. So obviously he was past, he, he was not with us anymore when he was discovered, but I think it was just like a pettiness thing. Okay. So yeah, that is the story. Wow. That's fun. I, uh, well, it's not fun because obviously somebody died, but it's different than something we've covered before. And I I like it for spooky season that she did a Hollywood kind of murder mystery here. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to, like I said, I I didn't want to get too gruesome the first week. So no promises for these weeks going forward because the majority of the cases I have found involve death of some sort. So Mm -hmm. yeah. If you, once again, if you guys want to read um, the Vice article, I'm going to leave it in the show notes so you can go um, do more, uh, do more research for yourself. Cause I left out a lot of, you know, miscellaneous facts and figures that you can go find for yourself. All right. Very cool. Is that the end for the murder mystery? Mm-hmm. Do you have a smile file for the week? So, so my week has not been great. But the only thing that's getting me through is, I believe I've mentioned him on the podcast before, but there is this man by the name of Juan Ho. And you guys know how BuzzFeed does thirst tweets with very attractive people. Mm -hmm. Juan Ho did his first thirst tweets and the video literally made me light up like uh, the 4th of July. Like it was the cutest thing ever. He's this giant man. He looks like he could be like a Captain America. Like he, he has the abs, he has the body, like, but he's so, he's so sweet. Like literally one of the tweets he read was like, I'd let one host smash. And he goes, I don't smash. I like peace. Oh, <laughs> he's so sweet. but yeah. So for the rest of the week, if I have any issues or more sadness, I'm just going to watch one who read his thirst tweets. I love you. That's so cute. Um, I my is a simple one, but you have to enjoy the simple things, right? So today is Indigenous Day, formerly Whoa. known as um, a certain explorer who sailed the ocean blue in 1492, but we don't acknowledge him anymore because he sucks. And is very problematic. Um, but today is Indigenous Peoples Day, and it's also a bank holiday. So it's a Monday, and I am not working, and I'm here for it. Oh, that's why you're not working today. Uh huh. Alyssa Alyssa works pretty much all holidays so she forgets when there are like little mini holidays and thrown in you know like Memorial Day and like Labor Day and all Alyssa forgets about those because she works through them yes we feel sorry for Alyssa that she has to work holidays it's not fair Columbus is in the bad place because of all the raping slave trade and genocide (laughs) Mm -hmm. go watch Mm -hmm. The Good Place (laughs) great show Yes, it is a federal holiday slash bank holiday. I work for a bank, so I get bank holidays off. That's one of my favorite parts of working where I work. You get random free holidays scattered in here like today. And then we also get things like President's Day and Veterans Day, which I always feel very guilty about because I'm not a veteran and I don't have like any reason to be able to have that day off, but I do. So I'm not going to complain, but honestly let's make it so only veterans have veterans day off yeah I mean that would make the most sense right like or they get like discounts everywhere I don't know something they deserve something better than just a a holiday where the bank and the federal government is closed (laughs) and can't help them (laughs) but yeah that's what I got for this week anything else no not really all right. Well, it's October, so we're well into football season. We are well into postseason, or excuse me, post regular season for baseball. Alyssa's Houston Astros are doing pretty well. They're up two one against the Sox. Annabelle's Atlanta Braves are tied one one with the Milwaukee Brewers, and they are about to do first pitch for their third game in Atlanta. So, yeah, well, sports update. Oh, and the Georgia Bulldogs are the number one team in the country because Alabama lost to unranked Texas A&M. So go dogs. I'm never going to hear the end of that this week too. 
beat Kentucky this week. Literally. Kentucky's also undefeated, so that should be a pretty good game. Oh, I'm really excited for that game. Also, yeah. I'd like to preface it. Alyssa is a fan of the Braves, too. Just She lives in Houston now. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Got to root for the hometown team. Yeah, so. Alyssa's favorite player on the Atlanta Braves is Austin Riley, who, Alyssa, do you remember his nickname? Oh, Dummy Thick. Dummy Thick. Mm-hmm. Literally, when you said his name, I was like, who is that? I know. He is like a very generic white name, which I know you wouldn't normally remember. But we, when Alyssa came to visit me last week, we went to a Braves game with our best friend, Hannah. And we were, you know, Austin Riley came up to bat. And this man is like he thick and Alyssa was here for it (laughs) if anyone else is also wondering my favorite member of the Houston Astros is my short king Jose Alzube call me I know you have a loving wife and children but I love you (laughs) here for it all right thank you guys for listening to what was media this week we will be back next week with some more stories in the big bad world of business and entertainment so we hope everybody has a good week Go dogs! And thank you for tuning in. We'll go see you Braves next time. Go Braves and go Strohs. Go Braves, go Strohs, go dogs. Yay.